Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. Welcome to part two of my reaction episode to The Desolation of Smaug, in which I actually talk about The Desolation of Smaug. I wanted to start off, though, with uh, one uh, brief comment. At the end of uh, my session, after um, I conducted it live... Uh, there were a couple people who were sort of accusing me of going to any length to bend over backwards to sort of explain or justify things that I found in the films. And I thought that was a, it was, it was a very interesting observation, which I kind of wanted to address. The main thing I guess I would say is, although I certainly am not conscious of any kind of acrobatics to attempt to justify the films, I have no motivation to justify them um, and no intrinsic desire for uh, uh, for the, to see them justified by others. What I do have, though, and what I think I see going on here, is I do have a general tendency to want to like things and to enjoy thinking about things more than I enjoy condemning them. And I think that, you know, if I'm given something, a book or a movie or something like that, which has some good and interesting points that I enjoy thinking about, and some parts that don't appeal to me and I think are weak, um, I will always tend to talk about the first parts and, and uh, either uh, omit or uh, talk much less, certainly, about the latter things. And that is just kind of who I am. It's kind of what I do. Um, I f- and it's not be- uh, basically. I find the temptation to criticize, the temptation to condemn things, to uh, sort of approach things by uh, focusing. Uh, primarily on the things that I dislike about it, um, I find that actually very tempting. Um, And there was certainly a time in my life when I spent a whole lot of time doing that. Um, What I've discovered uh, since then, uh, since I sort of have recovered from that, is that uh, life is not only more fun uh, and uh, enjoyable to live, but in fact uh, much more stimulating and interesting um, if you try to sort of focus on what is intriguing rather than on condemning. And then, and, and mostly I found that I end up thinking much more about other things and the things that other people are saying and much less about myself and my own views, which is what I was always focusing on, I found, when I was just seeking to condemn things. Um, anyway, not saying that everyone who is critiquing the film is sort of putting criticism uh, for criticism's sake first, but I, I do think that it is an easy thing to fall into, and I know that there are many Tolkien fans who are so uh, very understandably attached uh, to Tolkien and what he's done, uh, and so resistant uh, to any uh, adaptation which deviates from it, um, that they approach these, uh, you know, the, these films and 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 other things in a very in a very negative spirit, looking for things that are wrong rather than being willing to focus on things that are interesting. And I genuinely believe that people who approach Peter Jackson's Hobbit films in that way are missing out on a lot. I think there's a lot going on that my own, just my own analysis of the film and what I see happening there, taking that story as a story on its own, which I think are very interesting and actually in in many cases very much in keeping, um, much more than in the Lord of the Rings films with Tolkien's works. So I just wanted to kind of start off with that general comment uh, and then finally let you carry on with the more specific analysis I have here of The Desolation of Smaug. So I want to come to some of the specific scenes or themes that I was really interested in uh, and, uh, uh, and and sort of tell you a little bit about what I was thinking about them. A general comment that I would make my, my sort of broad reaction to the film as a whole is that everywhere in it I looked, I found the film engaging, 
thoughtfully with ideas from the books. I'm not saying I always agreed with everything they did. I'm not saying that I always liked it. But I found that rarely were they just wandering off and doing and 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 going off tangentially leaving the story and the books completely behind um in my opinion i can find i find very very few examples of that even the things which have bothered uh more purist responders much more um and i'm going to try to hit on uh some of those and show you what i mean by this um i'm going to try to pause at the end of each of these i've got a whole bunch of uh little topics one two three at least six or seven um uh scenes or topics um and so tr if you have questions about other topics try to save them until the end so i don't miss them because they kind of scroll up my screen um uh, amidst other people's questions so at first try to keep your questions or comments related to the thing the issue that i'm talking about and then when i'm done we'll have time to move on to to, to other topics that you want to talk about okay i'm just trying to keep track of everybody's comments because there are a lot of people here this evening um first I want to talk about Bilbo and the Ring. Now, the issue of the Ring and the representation of the Ring and Bilbo's relationship with it is one of the most obvious post-Lord of the Rings problems uh, when trying to depict The Hobbit. In fact, of course, it was a major challenge that Tolkien had to confront. That's what led him in to actually alter the text you know, the canonical text of The Hobbit itself, uh, in order to accommodate it by changing chapter 5 and making Gollum uh, into the person who would never possibly give his precious away, the, as he had offered to do quite willingly in the first edition. Um, so again, this, this, is, this is sort of an obvious question. Now, as far as I can see, unless I'm overlooking something, which is quite likely, Jackson has only made two big changes from the book in the depiction of the ring. First, Bilbo's choice not to disclose the presence of the ring, as you may remember. Um, he conceals the presence of the ring from the dwarves when he first comes out, when he first meets them again on the other side of the Misty Mountains. He doesn't let on. Remember, he does that thing where he puts on the ring and sneaks in amongst them and then takes it off in order to surprise them and make them think, basically, that he's just like a super awesome burglar. Um, and he he's concealing the ring from them because he wants to he wants to increase his street cred among the uh, among them he he he's not um uh that seems to be the motivation he's given eventually the moment at which he actually confesses to the dwarves that he does in fact have a magic invisibility ring uh is when they are running away from the spiders so he rescues them from the spiders the spiders are coming to and attacking them he's got to make himself invisible so we can go draw them off again um, to help the dwarves to escape. So he has to let them in on the secret of his ring, and he tells them that the ring exists, and then after they finish escaping from the spiders, Balin makes him retell the entire story, uh, riddles and all, of, of, of the Gollum encounter with the ring in its proper place. Um, so you remember, that's how it is handled uh, in the book. In the film, Jackson deviates from that, and he makes Bilbo not reveal the ring to them even at that point. Um, so, as far as we can tell, by the end of the Desolation of Smaug film, the dwarves still have no idea that Bilbo has a magic invisibility ring. That, as I said, is a major is a major deviation from the from the book. What do we see here? What is going on there? How does that deviation um, relate to the story? How does that function in the story that uh, that Jackson et al. are 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 telling? By the way, sidebar. Um, 
I will generally be talking about Peter Jackson because he's, you know, the, 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 the big name guy. Um, please do understand that I am using his name as a kind of synecdoche for the entire team. I know that it is not only his storytelling and creative vision, and I am not going to get into which bits are his and which bits are Philip Boyens's and what about the influence of, of, of Alan Lee and John Howe and whatever. I, I, I'm, so I'm collectively going to use the phrase Peter Jackson to refer to the whole team of people who are making this film. Um, just a little side note there. Um, anyway, Peter's, uh, Peter Jackson's handling, his choice to, um, uh, have him not reveal the ring, I thought was, uh, was handled well, and it seemed to me a change of a similar kind as Tolkien's revision of chapter five of The Hobbit at first. That is to say, they are, they are playing up um, they're, they're laying emphasis upon the effect that the ring is having upon Bilbo. Um, so he is, and, and this is of course especially emphasized at the beginning of the Desolation of Smaug when he has that confessional moment with Gandalf. And I, and I mean, I'm not making a joke. It's like a confession, right? He, he's gonna tell Gandalf about the ring. Why is he gonna tell Gandalf about the ring and why now? Right? Gandalf has just said that he's leaving and Bilbo appears to, to have this sort of impetus. Um, to, to, to confess this to Gandalf, to admit this, like, before Gandalf goes, I really should tell him. I really should tell him that I have this ring. Um, uh, this is something, for some reason, that Gandalf should know. And when you think about it, that's not obvious, right? That is to say, if the ring was for Bilbo simply a handy magical thing, right? Like his magic sword, which again, is in the original book how that ring is depicted, right? Um, it's a useful thing. That can help him on his journey and make him into a, into a specially awesome burglar. Um, if that's the case, that's not going to be, there's, there's no, there's no drive for confession there. What, why does Gandalf need to know? It's fine, right? Um, I mean, maybe he'd be curious. Maybe he'd just kind of like to tell him, but there's not that sense of, that sense that, that Martin Freeman seems to me to convey in his characterization of Bilbo in that particular moment where he's like, I, I really should tell him. I really should tell him. And then he chickens out and doesn't do it, ends up concealing it, right? comes really close to admitting that he found something, right? And then chickens out at the end. Um, and from then on, he doesn't reveal it to anybody else at all, but he seems to be struggling with it. There seems to be a consciousness, if I'm understanding properly um, what's being depicted there in The Desolation of Smaug. And I've only seen it twice, uh, so I, you know, I definitely, um, I could be wrong or could be still missing a lot of things. Um, but I think that we can see... Not only the ring having an effect on him unconsciously, but of him being aware of the fact that this thing that he's found is not an innocent magical item, um, you know, an innocent and useful thing. He seems to have his own doubts and concerns about it, which is also how I understand this, what I would call the second big change that, uh, that Peter Jackson institutes in this story of Bilbo and the ring. And that is, Bilbo wears the ring very seldom, and only for short periods of time. He spends way less time invisible in the movie than he does in the books. Um, and again, I, I want to resist a reading which says, well, they just did that for special effects reasons because they don't want to have to use that, you know, ring vision uh, effect too often. Yeah, maybe. But again, notice, that's a guess, right? That's the guess about what is motivating them and what they're thinking. 
let's not go there. Let's instead look at the story itself. What is, how does this work inside the story that the film is, is, is telling? And it seems to me to be a reflection of Bilbo's sense of the evil effects of the ring, that he is uncomfortable with this thing. Um, and I think, I'm thinking in particular of that scene when Bilbo drops the ring and recovers it and kills that, I don't even know what it is, that giant sand crab thing that climbs up out of the earth. Um, but anyway, uh, which is associated with, it's not identical with, but it's associated with the naming scene, right? He, um, he stabs the spider and names Sting, right? That's a big moment. It's a, it's a moment that, um, that I'm sure you were as excited about as I was, you know, and, and really looking for. Um, and it's a really important moment in the book. Well, Jackson adds a companion piece, right? Not just that first spider that he fights and kills, but this second creature. Um, I know he's killed another spider in the interim, but, um, but again, there was that, that first time he stepped out and attacked the spider. This time, um, now being visible, he attacks this second thing, um, with, and it's very violent, right? Um, he acts quite savagely. And at the end of his savage, uh, slaying of this creature, um, he holds up the ring and says, mine, right? That is, my understanding of that is that he was motivated, he was changed. Um, his, the ferocity, which is unlike anything we've seen from Bilbo before, comes out when he sees this creature hovering over the ring, his ring, which he is trying to recover. Um, and you may remember, it's right after that, that he sits down and does that thing where he puts his hand over his mouth and it looks like he's about to throw up. Um, and I think it's really interesting. One of the fascinating things to me about Bilbo and Bilbo's character development in these films um, uh, is the extent to which so much of it happens non-verbally. And I think I can kind of understand why some people, I've heard some people say, you know, oh, it's awful, the films, there's no development of Bilbo's character. That is completely untrue, in my opinion. I can understand why people say that, because it's non-verbal. But for my money, Martin Freeman's job, uh, his acting job as Bilbo, has been breathtaking. What he accomplishes through body language and facial expression um, is astounding. I think of the times that he has taken Bilbo as a character from one place to another, from his... You think about in film one, um, the scene with Gandalf, right, when he's recovering from his faint, when Gandalf is doing the whole Tooken Baggins thing and telling the story of Bull Roarer and um, Bilbo saying, I'm a Baggins at Bag End. You remember that scene. And at the end, Bilbo walks out and says, no, no, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. And he leaves. Um, well, from there through, that's, you know, it's soon after that, that we get the, uh, Over the Misty Mountains cold song and Bilbo listening to that, right? Him, him hearing that and reflecting on that, then him waking up in the morning and walking around Bag End and then thereafter running down the path with the contract in his hand. Martin Freeman takes Bilbo from walking out of that conversation with Gandalf through his response to the dwarf song and the quite complicated reactions he has upon waking up to find the dwarves gone through to running down the path with the contract. That change of heart, that development of his own character, that step that Bilbo has taken, the took side winning and all of that, Martin Freeman does totally non-verbally by facial expression and body language alone. Um, and I am deeply impressed 
um, by how Freeman can do that. Um, this is where, you know, I just referred to how I've only seen the film twice. I feel like I need to see it several more times to pay sufficiently close attention uh, to what Freeman is doing to make sure that I'm understanding what he's doing with the ring thing uh, correctly. But my sense of it is that Bilbo does not want to wear the ring, especially after that incident in Mirkwood with the sand crab thing. Um, he seems conscious of the fact that it's changing him in ways that are at the very least uncomfortable, if not actually disturbing for him. And he seems to go out of his way to use it as little as possible, waiting until the last possible second, even in the dragon's lair with the dragon waking up behind him. He waits until the last possible second to put the ring on um, and takes the ring off at Smaug's insistence. By the way, I loved that moment. One element from the book, again, in thinking through the book and how are they going to adapt this and what are the challenges for adaptation, one of the things that I was not sure they would attempt at all is Smaug's overwhelming personality. That is the tendency, not tendency, um, the pattern in Tolkien's dragons for them to have an overwhelming force of will that can compel people to obey them. The ways in which dragons have the ability just to overwhelm the wills of their listeners, of their interlocutors. We see it happen, of course, with Turin and Neonor, back with Glaurung in the first age, uh, and Tolkien alludes to it with Bilbo, too, that Smaug's overwhelming personality and Bilbo's desire to take the ring off and, and jump out and, 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 and expose himself, right? And he has to resist that temptation. That seems to be what they have depicted there in the film with Smaug. He can smell that somebody's there, right? And he is, he apparently, if I'm understanding this, if I'm interpreting it properly, uh, Smaug is guessing that the person who is invisible right there has some ring or something that is making him invisible, and Smaug is exerting that overwhelming personality of his in order to compel the person to take the ring off. Remember, that happened in the book. Bilbo was getting the psychic whammy from uh, uh, from Smaug uh, to take off the ring. In the film, it works. Um, and again, that I take to be not just a wanton change on Jackson's part, but a reflection of the increased awareness that the film has of the ring. And again, that increased awareness is a symptom, well, symptom is not quite the right word, a manifestation of this, the kind of retroactive consistency that I was talking about before. One of the patterns that I see in the films is going back and saying, okay, given the, the sort of the, the new context of these uh, of, of of these events that the Lord of the Rings gives us. Let's go back and retell this story consistently, um, making those connections all the way through. Tolkien did make changes to The Hobbit, but not consistently. That is, he changed Chapter Five, but only Chapter Eight. He made some other changes here and there too, but he did not go through and make systematic changes to the Ring and Bilbo's thoughts about the ring. There are one or two other places where he did. You may remember that moment at the end of chapter five when uh, Bilbo... Uh, remember when Bilbo is, is discovered by the goblins when he comes around the corner and the ring has slipped off his finger and he's visible and the goblins can see him, right? And there's that comment that the narrator makes about um, whether the, the ring was playing a last trick before it took a new master. You remember that line? That's not in the 1937 version, of course. That's one of, that's one of the later editions when he revised the passage. But again, it's one moment where we see 
the narrator of The Hobbit talking about the relationship between Bilbo and the Ring in a way that is totally consistent with the Ring as we come to understand it and the relationship that it has with its bearers in The Lord of the Rings. But most of the time, in The Hobbit, we don't get that. Tolkien didn't do that everywhere. Most of the places he left alone. He left them, he left them stand as they were in the, in the earlier version. Jackson and company are being consistent. They're going through and saying, okay, no, no, let's actually think about all of the different interactions with Bilbo and the Ring, all the places where he uses it, with the spiders, with the wood elves, with Smaug, um, and let's think about what would that look like if it was the Ring of Power that Bilbo had, which, in a sense, it was, but, of course, in a sense, it wasn't when Tolkien wrote it in 1937 and didn't change most of those passages um, when, he, uh, when, he's, when he's off burgling and giving away the Arkenstone also, of course, um, which we haven't gotten to yet in the films. Um, anyway, this is, so, so th- that's the, the re-envisioning that they're doing. And I think it's really fascinating. Um, I think it's, re- I, I think it's, I think it's very good. Let me pause here and look at some of the, some of the comments. Um, uh, let's see, uh, yeah, Kate, uh, Kate, uh, Kate Neville is here. She, a uh, Mythgard student who I know is, uh, 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 is, is an actor. And I was, Kate, I was interested to hear what you would say if you agreed with me about Martin Freeman. And Kate does. Uh, she says it's subtle and wonderful. A simple swallow of fear, a catch of the breath, a shift of stance just before he decides not to confess to Gandalf. Uh, so wonderful. He is not afraid to be simple. Absolutely. No, I, I, I just, I am not a connoisseur of acting, uh, and, and quite ignorant about many things, uh, in acting, um, as in cinematography. Um, but even I have been overwhelmed by, uh, uh, Martin Freeman, who I think is not getting nearly enough, um, credit for what he's doing. But anyway, uh, sorry. So looking back over some of the other things that you are, um, saying about Bilbo and the ring, um, Okay. Good. Brandon was pointing out about the Smaug thing, not only the business of his overwhelming personality, but how Smaug seems to sense its presence. Of course, Brandon, the fact that um, he senses its presence might possibly uh, suggest something more of the connection between him and Sauron, the necromancer, um, that we would have. But again, see, this is another thing. That question is a question never asked by Tolkien in The Hobbit. That is to say, if somebody brought the ruling ring into Smaug's presence and was wearing the ruling ring in Smaug's presence, would Smaug sense it? That is not just smell a person and recognize that that person was invisible by some unknown mechanism, but actually be able to sense the presence and the power of the ring itself. I don't know. That's a question Tolkien never answers because he didn't he did not complete his thorough revision of the Hobbit. Um, who knows? He didn't get to the Smaug passage, right? So to the conversations with Smaug and his revision. So we don't know what he would have said or what he would have done with that. But it's a question that's worth asking. Um, and uh, and I, it seems possible that the film is implying that he does, in fact, sense or sense something about it. Um, I'm not really sure how to take that, but anyway, um, uh, but, but, but Brandon, I agree. I think that that's a really interesting question. Um, Ben asks, do I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the impact that the ring seems to have on, on Bilbo right away, do I think it goes against the idea of Bilbo having a particular, uh, resistance to the ring as a hobbit? Um, 
It certainly risks it, Ben. My biggest concern or my biggest question about about this is sort of where is it going? Um, where are we going to end up with Bilbo? Um, his relationship with the ring can't accelerate too quickly. We've still got 60 years before we get to, uh, to butter scraped over too much bread, right? Um, uh, so we can't have him turning into Gollum by the end of film three, uh, or else what are we going to do retroactively? So Ben, that's my biggest concern. Um, but actually that's why I, that's another reason why I like the way that they've done all of that very subtly and very non-verbally, because they haven't really ratcheted up the stakes. All that we've had is that one scene. The, the, the only clear thing we've had, and I say clear, you know, sort of uh, uh, diffidently, uh, is that one scene, the, like, hand over his mouth, looking like he's going to throw up scene. Um, and I don't think we need make too much of that. Not like, I'm becoming a monster, what's wrong with me? But just discomfort and discomfort associated with the ring which he's looking at holding up and looking at um some sense that something's not quite right is that more self-aware than bilbo was even up through the day he gave the ring away in the fellowship of the ring yes yes it is but again there are lots of places i think where these questions are not just questions related to how do you make a film adaptation of the hobbit they're questions about Tolkien's world, sometimes which he himself doesn't answer. Um, okay, Bilbo was not very much affected by the ring, um, Gandalf explains, because he was, um, because he was, um, you know, he started his ownership of it with pity. Okay. It seems to affect Frodo more quickly. Think about Gandalf's comment. Um, Frodo's had it for 17 years, a fraction of what Bilbo has had. Um, and, you know, already he has no will to damage it. He can't get himself to throw it into the fire, even though he tries to, right? The ring has had an effect on him. He's not been outwardly changed. He's not becoming Gollum. Um, but it has had an effect on him. Um, I, there are many times, and I'll bring this up again in other places and, and concerning other themes. Um, there are places where I think the, um, the films are addressing questions, not that Tolkien avoided, but which weren't, which didn't exactly come up for Tolkien because of the way his story emerged over time. Um, but again, looking back from the Fellowship of the Ring, I think we'd have to admit that there is some question. Bilbo's owned the ring for a long time. Um, he's owned the ring for 60 years and worn it and used it, as Gandalf says. Why has it not affected him more than it has? And of course, we see Bilbo being affected when we meet him again in Rivendell, uh, in many meetings, we find that it has affected him, right? Um, we do see its mark on him much more clearly than we saw it back in chapter one, um, uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring. So, Ben, there's definitely a concern there, um, though I don't think it's, it's exactly, uh, it's exactly night and day. Um, okay, okay, let's see. Um, Sorry, scanning through lots of comments here. Um, Stephen thinks, by the way, that, that was a trapdoor spider, a type of ground-dwelling spider. I was thinking that too, but the the physiology didn't look right. It has like a shell. I mean, it looks like a crustacean. It didn't look like a it didn't look like a spider at all. Do do trapdoor spiders look like that? I I I might just be ignorant, but I thought anyway. Didn't look like a spider to me. It looked like it had a carapace, uh, but but. but. But I'm not going to get too bothered about it. Um, but I'm also not going to say it doesn't matter. 
because metaphorically it's kind of interesting um the fact that he'd be fighting something with a hard shell i'm tempted to i'm tempted to to think about that symbolically a little bit but anyway it may well just be a trapdoor spider steve that's quite likely um good good um Good. Yes, of course. One of the one of the one of the things that always happens when I go back and look at the comments you've been making um, after the fact is, of course, seeing many of you saying, sort of anticipating exactly what I was going to say. Uh, so I, I apologize. I can't give you all the props that you deserve for already thinking what I was just saying. Um, but um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay. Danny asks, is it possible that Bilbo reveals the ring to the dwarves or maybe just to Balin in an, in an extended scene? Maybe, but there's no evidence of it. Um, remember that line in chapter 11 of The Hobbit where they can't find the secret door and they're getting kind of frustrated and the dwarves are beginning to say among themselves that uh, their burglar, now that especially since he has an, a, a magic ring now and can be expected to be especially especially good performer, uh, that he should go in by the front gate. There's no implication of anything like that in uh, uh, in the films. That is, nobody makes any allusion that I car even even indirect allusion to Oh, Bilbo, you know, he's he can be invisible now, so we should ask him to do this or that or for this reason. You know, so I, I, I don't see that anywhere. Um, so, uh, um, so I don't see any positive reasons to believe that he has revealed it, and I can think of some reasons for him not revealing it. That is, it would seem to be more consistent with the way that he, he interacts with the ring during the rest of the film, uh, that he wouldn't. But but it's possible. Um, I'm always interested to see the extended edition. That in itself is a fun uh, sort of moment of analysis and reanalysis, um, going back and looking at the other passages. Um, okay, let's see. Yeah, Sean thinks it's a baby spider. Robert, yeah, I know that spiders have exoskeletons, Robert, but but there's a difference between an exoskeleton, even though presumably the exoskeleton on a mammoth spider like that would be fairly thick. Um, but but it 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 well, we'll have to we'll have to see when we can actually look at the image when I can actually have the image and look at it uh, on on my computer screen. Uh, I'll I'll be able to perhaps articulate it more clearly. But it looked like it had a shell, not merely a regular spider exoskeleton thing. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Stephen asks, a good question on the general subject of which I have little, uh, uh, relatively little to say. Stephen asks, uh, Stephen Wolf asks, another thought, don't we see Bilbo using the ring in the Fellowship in a sort of light-hearted manner? Uh, how will we reconcile the way we see Bilbo react to using the ring now and how he will use it in the future? Um, I agree with you, Stephen. There is a potential um, issue of retroactive continuity between the Hobbit films and the Lord of the Rings films. This is true not only of Bilbo and the Ring, but of several other issues, such as especially of the relationship between Gandalf and Saruman, uh, which uh, strikes me as very challenging. Um, what I've been saying in Riddles in the Dark consistently from the beginning is I hope they don't think too much about consistency. That is, I would rather uh, I would rather them pursue the Hobbit story that they are telling and not bend over backwards to make it fit to the beginning of the return of the of, of the, the the fellowship of the ring. I'd rather have it be inconsistent um, than have it be forced. But um, 
if it's going to link up at all with the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, what I would expect is Bilbo in some state of denial or having convinced himself that everything is okay by the end. That's what I'm going to be looking for, and we can... I'll save this for a Riddles in the Dark episode for Season 3, but that's the general direction that I expect the Ring plot to go for Bilbo, um, is for him to achieve some sense of denial thing. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. Okay, I should move on, because there are, like, six other, five or six other topics I wanted to hit, plus take questions from you. Uh, so let me move on. But still with Bilbo, I wanted to talk about burglary and the Arkenstone. Um, so let's back up for a second uh, and think about the, burg- the burglary theme in the book. Bilbo is hired as a burglar in Chapter 1 in a plan which I think we have to admit is utterly nonsensical. Um, The plan as it is articulated by Gandalf and by the dwarves in Chapter 1 makes no sense at all. Um, They want a warrior to kill the dragon. That makes sense. If they can't kill the dragon, they want to hire a burglar. Presumably, again, this is all about the goal of their quest is to recover their treasure. Presumably, they want a burglar so he can burgle some of the treasure. If we can't kill the dragon, we should at least try to steal as much of it as we can. Then, though we won't have it all, we'll at least have some. Um, that seems to be the plan as they articulated in chapter one. This, of course, turns out to be a very comically bad plan, as Bilbo himself points out when they get to the mountain. And, uh, they have no plan for killing the dragon. And Bilbo says, it is absurd to ask me to burgle this treasure. Um, you know, that it would take a hundred burglars a hundred years to, uh, to take everything out. Um, you know, you ought to have brought five hundred burglars, he says. Um, so, the plan, as it was initially conceived, is a silly one. So, with all of this talk about Bilbo as a burglar, all the way through the book, it looks like, at the end, his role as burglar is going to be irrelevant. That is to say that his whole hiring as a burglar is not going to end up meaning anything, or, or, account, or you know, amounting to anything, um, as far as acts of burglary are concerned. Of course, as we know, um, what happens is that Tolkien takes that burglary theme, that burglary concept, and twists it, and sends it in a different direction, um, which doesn't really fit with what we could have foreseen back in chapter one. And that's through the in, the introduction of the Arkenstone. Um, Bilbo, when he picks up the Arkenstone and steals it and puts it into his pocket, says, I am a burglar indeed. That is the moment when he fulfills his role as burglar. Um, he becomes an honest burglar when he gives up the Arkenstone and sacrifices it to Bard in his attempt to buy peace in chapter 16. Those two moments, the theft of the Arkenstone and the giving away of the Arkenstone in chapter 16 to try to establish peace between dwarves and elves and men, is the way that Tolkien brings the burglary theme to its fulfillment. Again, the films, so, 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 the films do something quite different, right? Are they leaving the story behind? Are they chucking the story out the window? I don't think so. I think here, this is one of the examples that I had mentioned before that I was going to point to of where they are clearly taking an idea which is, this isn't even a Lord of the Rings idea. This is a last few chapters of the Hobbit idea and putting it backwards and making it consistent from the beginning. Um, the film doesn't recreate the shift from silly dwarves with an absurd plan in chapter one to that plan being fulfilled in an unanticipated and to them unanticipatable way uh, by Bilbo. The film doesn't recreate that particular little drama, right? Instead, they work the Arkenstone backwards 
uh, from the beginning to make the entire burglary plot much more consistent. Um, in fact, they make it a great deal more consistent. The plan as it is articulated in the film has the benefit of actually making sense. They have a plan. You can see why they wanted a burglar, right? Their plan, just to, 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 to summarize, right? Make sure we're all on the same page and so that you guys can correct me if I'm getting it wrong. Um, the Arkenstone, the whole, the, the seven kingdoms of the dwarves, the seven kindreds of the dwarves have sworn an oath that they will obey, they will, they will, they will serve, you know, they will, they will flock to and obey the call of the king who, of a king who wields the Arkenstone. The Arkans, the possession of the Arkenstone gives the heir of the line of Durin the right and the, the, the authority to call up the other kingdoms of the dwarves and rally them to him. So, what is their plan? Their plan from the beginning, though, it wasn't explained in film one. It appears now in film two to have been the case. The plan all along was to hire a burglar, not just to steal random treasure, but to steal the Arkenstone. Their plan is to defeat the dragon by uniting, by reuniting the dwarves and marching upon their homeland and destroying the dragon and taking back their homeland from the dragon. That is, all of them, together, the armies of the dwarves, but they can't get the armies of the dwarves. Thorin tries, we know, in film one, to get the armies of the dwarves. He goes up in the Blue Mountains and talks with them, and they won't come, he says, because he doesn't have the Arkenstone, we now learn in film two. So they've got to get the Arkenstone. So they drop a contract for a burglar. They need a burglar for one purpose, to steal the Arkenstone. Once Thorin has the Arkenstone, now he can call up his kindred. And since apparently in the films it only takes five minutes to get from anywhere to anywhere else, you can assemble the dwarves from the Blue Mountains and everything. It'll only take them about, uh, you know, if they take the bullet train in whatever bullet train that, like, Azog rode from Bjorn's house down to, down to Dol Guldur, for instance, uh, which got him there in about 45 minutes, they have excellent transportation. Uh, in, uh, in, in, in Peter Jackson's Middle Earth. But anyway, we can reassemble the dwarves and then we'll be in, we will be in good shape. That is the plot as I understand it. And again, is it different from the book? Yes, absolutely it's different. Um, but it has the virtue of making sense from the beginning. Again, not saying that I don't like the book, as you know, but, but it requires a shift. It requires a change. Um, to sort of bring things together there at the end. Um, they are making it a consistent plan from the beginning, and it does, as they say, have the benefit of actually making sense. But now, are they, how is this part of the story working? How does Bilbo as burglar in the film compare to Bilbo as burglar in the books? Well, for me, sort of the jury is still out on this. It's gonna, uh, I'm gonna be very interested to be watching this in film three, because, um, it sets up the Siege of the Lonely Mountain, by the way, piece of vocabulary there, because I'm going to be using that vocabulary a lot. By the Siege of the Lonely Mountain, I am referring to the standoff between Thorin, the Elven King, and Bard that we get up to and up, up to including the Battle of Three Armies, which just about happened, um, and not including the Battle of Five Armies that happens afterwards. Um, so that whole, from the death of Smaug through the Battle of Five Armies, that, uh, that tense political standoff at the Lonely Mountain, I will be referring to that thing, that section of the story, as the Siege of the Lonely Mountain, when thinking forward to that moment, or moments, several moments, presumably, uh, in film three. Um, so as I said, I'm going to wait to see how he depicts the siege uh, in order to see where this goes. But if you think about um, 
the kind of it's rather than it's certainly not de-emphasizing the role of Bilbo as Burkler. Um, it's giving it a new and really interesting prominence. Bilbo, I presume Bilbo's still going to at least think about giving the Arkenstone over. I'm not sure exactly what he's going to do. My guess is that he still is going to hand over the Arkenstone uh, to Bard. However, again, that's my guess. But you think of how much more rides on that now with the way that they've set this up in the film. Um, the 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 strain between Thorin and Bilbo, already quite great in the book, is going to be even greater. Um, the moral dilemma that Bilbo is in is going to be is is going to be even further emphasized. I find that this is frequently the effect of many of the changes that these that the films make. That is, they take an idea, a theme that's there in the book, and they put a spotlight on it. Now. Do I think that's sometimes clumsily done? Yes. Do I sometimes feel like I'm being, you know, smacked between the eyes by something? Yes, sometimes I do. Um, uh, but what I rarely feel is that they're doing, they're interested in something just completely different or opposed to what the film, what the books were interested in. In the f- book, Bilbo is in a really delicate moral position. Does he admit, does he hide the, Arkenstone from Thorin, as he does, uh, knowing that Thorin is looking for it. He knows he's lying to Thorin, um, and now he's going to give it up, and he's going to do something which is going to look like treachery, and um, he's doing it for good reasons, but it's a complex moral situation that Bilbo's in. In the film, apparently, it's going to be an even more complex situation with much higher moral stakes. So again, I don't see this uh, you know, not knowing yet how that's going to work out. I don't see that as a complete deviation, but, uh, an expansion, a, 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 an exaggeration of that scene, which clearly exists, um, which clearly exists in the films. Um, oh, and the other thing I would say, of course, the business about the dwarves swearing the oath to the person who holds the Arkenstone, um, on one level, that seems, it seems to be a plot contrivance uh in order to make the Arkenstone the focal point of the burglary, um, to invest the Arkenstone with a significance beyond the fact that Thorin just really, really likes it, that is that it's really meaningful to Thorin. Um, that's all we get in the in the in the book, right? I mean it's it's in a way I mean it's the heart of the mountain. It becomes um it comes to represent uh something like the the you know sort of the symbol of Erebor itself, you know, of the kingdom under the mountain itself. Um so, you know, for these reasons, the Arkansas really important in the book, um, but they give it a, a sort of a more practical significance uh, in, you know, bestowing the right to rule, as Thranduil says in the film, um, uh, because of that, because of that oath that the dwarves have stolen. It, it, you know, so that's a, that's a, that's a new thing. But again, you can see how uh, it enables the whole burglary Arkenstone plot. Um, the other thing I'd say is, although of course, of course, there's obviously no textual warrant for any such thing uh, among the dwarves, it's not something that I would call an un-Tolkien-like move, that kind of oath. Um, I would say, in my reading of Tolkien, the fact that the dwarves might swear such an oath seems plausible. People swear oaths like that. Um, at different times. Um, I mean, heck, think about the oath, uh, that Finrod Felagun swears to Barahir. Um, and, uh, you know, in the ring that he gives him in Baron coming with the ring. Um, again, it's not like 
that it's just the ring himself, but you know, it's it, it, it's not that holding the ring gives him the power to 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 sort of cash in on that oath, but it's almost like that, right? Um, he recovers that ring. Without that ring, he couldn't prove who he was to Felagund, right? So, um, he's got to recover that ring in order to hold the ring and then be able to collect uh, on the oath. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but my point is, it's a kind of thing that does happen in Tolkien. It strikes me as a kind of at least Tolkien-ish idea. Also, it seems to me quite fitting the character of dwarves as we get them uh, in Tolkien to imagine that dwarves who had sworn this oath of allegiance uh, to the heir of the line of Durin would stand on the technicality, even if it's only a technicality, um, even if the Arkenstone is merely a symbol, um, that the dwarves would say, we're not coming if you don't have the, we stood to, you know, we can get out of this oath on a technicality, and we will. If you don't have the Arkenstone, we will refuse and you can't make us, because technically, by the letter of the law, you haven't abided by the terms because you don't have the Arkenstone. That sounds exactly like what dwarves would do, actually. I can easily believe that. Um, that I mean, heck, it's it's almost the same. It, it's a similar kind of sharp practice that Thorin himself, um, that Thorin himself shows uh, in his negotiations with Bard and the Elven King. Um, ben says Tolkien would explain why the dwarves would swear such an oath, e.g., the Arkenstone possesses some sort of power or cultural import, e.g., the Silmarils. Um, I actually think both of those things the films has suggested, Ben. Um, in the film, the Arkenstone comes across as a MacGuffin device arbitrarily inserted in. Maybe. I'm not, possibly. Possibly. But I'm not sure of that. Um, Smaug's words about the Arkenstone driving him mad. Um, not to mention that. Not to mention also the nature of the visual representation of the light of the Arkenstone. Um, more so in film two than in film one leads me to believe that it actually does have some kind of power or cultural import, as you say. Clearly, it has cultural import, Ben. Um, but that it might actually have power as well. Um, uh, I, I, um, the light shining from the Arkenstone, as they depict it in the film, does not just look like radiant light. I mean, c contrast that, for instance, with the light that shines from the file of Galadriel uh, in The Return of the King. It's very different. The light looks very different. It has this kind of... It looks like a sort of greasy emanation from the stone, doesn't it? Um, it looks more like radioactive material than like a radiant jewel. Um, and I'm wondering. Uh, I'm wondering if that's what we're supposed to be taking from it, especially in conjunction with Smaug's comments about how it's likely to infect... Um, to infect Thorin. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of... I'm, I think the jury's still out on that, Ben, so we'll see. Um, okay. Yeah. Sam is uh, citing sworn word may strengthen quaking heart, uh, citing dwarves, uh, dwarves and oaths. Um, yes, Ben, the dwarves could be building a nuclear reactor. I doubt it. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but yes. Um, yeah, Jeffrey is really interested in, in drawing parallels between the ring and the Arkenstone. Yes, and of course, that's another thing. Um, the films, at least the extended edition of film one, invoked the idea of the Dwarven Ring of Power. We know that the Dwarven Ring of Power did have this uh, sort of an infective, uh, infectious, that, that's the adjective, infectious effect upon the dwarves, um, that it did corrupt their hearts uh, in this way. 
Um, so again, even the if if <clears throat> if it turns out to be true that the Silmaril this the Silmaril oops, excuse me did I say Silmaril that the Arkenstone has the power to uh, infect the holder with this corrupt desire for gold, that too is a Tolkien idea, right? It's transplanted from the Dwarfen Ring to the Arkenstone, but it's still it's not like they're coming out of nowhere. Yeah, Carissa, sorry, a little little. Freudian or sort of Feanorian slip there. Um, Eric, uh, though at Eric and Danny, and I think it was actually reading your questions that prompted my little Feanorian slip. Um, is the Arkenstone a Silmaril? That's a really complicated question. Um, uh, historically complicated, that is. Simple answer. No, it's not. <laughs> but that's only the simple answer. Um, that is to say, when Tolkien goes back and puts all of the items from his legendarium together, that is, when he writes the Lord of the Rings and then fits uh, the Hobbit into it and all of it back to the Silmarillion, um, when he does all of that, um, from then on, the answer to the question, is the Arkansas Silmaril, is clearly no. However, if you go back to the early 30s, when he is writing The Hobbit, and ask then, because of course the Silmarils had already been invented several decades before, um, er, two decades before, um, if you then ask the question, um, is the Arkenstone a Silmaril, the answer kind of seems to be yes. Uh, Arkenstana is, uh, it's from an Anglo-Saxon word, or uh, Old Norse word, which means holy jewel. That was in fact when Tolkien translated uh, parts of the Silmarillion legends into Anglo-Saxon, um, which he did at length, um, when he did that, he used the word Arkenstana for Silmaril. That was the word that was that Silmaril was translated uh, into. So, uh, and the description of the Arkenstone is very similar to the description that he gives for the Silmarils in the in that state. You know, back back in the early thirties. I don't think there can be any question that that's what he had in his head, uh, that he was thinking of the Silmarils when he wrote about the Arkenstone. But when it gets, uh, when it gets, um, when the Hobbit story gets incorporated into the Legendarium, then no. Is it the Arkenstone that Mithras threw into the earth? No. No, it isn't. Absolutely not. It isn't. Once that question is a sensible question to ask, that is, once the Hobbit has been connected with the rest of the stories, the answer is no. Um... And I doubt that Peter Jackson is going to go there, and not only because he would probably face a lawsuit, uh, but um, still. Though technically, I guess actually the story of the Silmarils is told in Appendix A of The Return of the King, so he could claim that he could actually tell the story of the Silmarils, but no, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but anyway, um, so we'll see. Could Jackson do that? Theoretically. I don't think he will, though. Um, anyway. Um, uh, okay. Um, sorry, just looking through your, um, yeah, good. Um, okay. Okay, so that's the Arkenstone thing. And again, just one last thing, and I got, I know, I know this sounds like blasphemy to say, but it's the, uh, the, the, the Arkenstone and the burglary thing is one of the ways in which the story of the film actually makes more sense than the story of the book. It holds together better. The book was a very uneven story. It, 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 you know, he didn't have any idea where the end was, what was happening at the end when he started at the beginning. He made lots of changes of direction and did not go back and change everything to make the beginning fit with the end. 
I love how it all works together, and I, I hope you all, you know, you all have plenty of evidence of that uh, if you've read the book that I wrote about The Hobbit, um, you know, loving and admiring The Hobbit and how it fits together. But the fact is, he never does make that story completely consistent, not only with The Lord of the Rings, but with itself. Um, and they're actually doing that in the films. Um, so uh, it's, I, and I, I find those moments especially interesting. Again, it doesn't mean you have to like it better, but, uh, but again, I, what the, the argument that I can't see, um, about those is just that they're disregarding the story entirely and leaving it behind. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is Thranduil, and there are three elements, uh, in the depiction of Thranduil that I want to touch on, I hope relatively briefly. First, uh, his general jerkitude. Thranduil is awful in the films, um, uh, I've heard several people comment on, uh, his, uh, both visual and character, uh, similarity to, uh, uh, to Lucius Malfoy. Um, and I totally, I totally get that. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, he is a jerk. But, there's precedent for this. Um, the Elven King was a jerk. Um, in the 1937 published book, his jerkitude has been significantly dialed down. Um, again, I recommend, because I can't ever recommend enough, uh, uh, John Ratliff's The History of the Hobbit. If you read The History of the Hobbit, you will see that in the first versions of the story, as Tolkien originally conceived the story, the Elven King is a jerk. Um, the very first time, that is the very first time that the story idea of Bilbo trying to offer the Arkenstone up to the dwarves' enemies, the first time that comes in is not his attempt to establish peace. He is trying explicitly to ransom the lives of his friends. So the Elven King and Bard also, but primarily the Elven King, are there and they're going to come in and they're going to exterminate the dwarves. They are planning to murder Thorin and the other dwarves in order to get the treasure. And Bilbo comes out with, sneaks out with the Arkenstone and says, I will give you the Arkenstone if you promise me in exchange to spare the lives of the dwarves. Don't kill them. And many of the elves there object to this. And they're like, nah, don't take that deal, right? Uh, we can get the Arkenstone anyway after we kill them. The Elven King is really not a nice guy. We are way far away from the Elven King, who is eventually going to say, long shall I tarry ere I begin this war for gold. He didn't tarry much at all in the early versions of the manuscripts. Now, what we can see over the course of the revision process, from those early concepts and drafts down to the, uh, down to the final published text in 1937, we see the Elven King, he gets better and better and nicer. And what I think uh, Tolkien is addressing a problem of an inconsistency. He has said, you may remember back in chapter 8, that uh, elves are good people, right? Yet elves they are and remain, and that is good people, capital G, capital P. And then he goes on to depict the Elven King as not really being good people, right? So he makes the Elven King more and more good over the course of his revision process. But... He wasn't always... And, of course, there was this other problem, right? Since the Elven King is essentially the only wood elf we ever meet. Yes, we meet Galleon the butler and the and the, the guard captain, but I don't really count them. We don't really get to know them much as people. 
Um, we, we know more about their alcohol tolerance than we know about their characters. The Elven King, throughout The Hobbit, is basically the, 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 the solo character stand-in for that whole people. He represents the elves. He's the spokesman and representative of the elves. It is therefore really important not to make him a complete jerk in the book. And this seems to be what Tolkien was recognizing and changing over the course of the... At least that's the direction that the drafts move uh, as we go along. Um, because if you have one elf as the representative of all of the wood elves, you can't have him be a complete jerk. But, of course, you are freed up to allow him to be a jerk, because he can be he can be a jerk, you know individual elves have always been jerks, as we can see by reading the Silmarillion, right? Um, elves can still be good people, capital G, capital P, and still have some bad apples in the barrel, right? We, we There's plenty of Silmarillion-based evidence for this. Um, uh, but when your whole barrel is represented by the one apple, it can't be a bad one. Um, however, all you need to do is mm, introduce another elven character or two, and pretty soon you find that you can make him a jerk without sacrificing all of the people. This leads then to my second point about the second element of Thranduil, which I think is interesting, and that is his elitism and snobbery. Uh, his, uh, you know, insufferably rude um, statement to uh, to Toriel about how obviously she cannot give any hope to uh, Legolas where there is none, that uh, um, you know, when she says with what seems to be sarcastic self-deprecation, oh, I do not think that you would ever allow your son to be pledged to a lowly sylvan elf, and he says, you're right, I would not, right? I, I perceive no, no, no irony in what you say. You say the simple truth. Um, anyway, complete jerk. However, um, what we have there is decision A, to make him a jerk, and then B, to apply that to a factor which is present in Tolkien's concept, but certainly never developed in The Hobbit, which is the class mix uh, in the Elves of Mirkwood. We know that we are told, Tolkien says, that Thranduil and Legolas are Sindar, but they live among the Sylvan Elves. Um, so the majority of the Wood Elves are Sylvan Elves, but Thranduil is a Sindar. He is a different class. He is a higher class. Let's not just pussyfoot about saying he is a different class. There is a clear hierarchy here in Tolkien's world. Um, and like it or not, we need to be honest about that fact, right? Thranduil is higher than the rest of the Elves that he rules over. That exists. That's a thing in Tolkien's world. I have to tell you, I was surprised to find them bringing that in in the film. That is, I, I that was a level of detail I didn't expect them to go to, uh, but they did. Um, and having introduced the fact that we have uh, a essentially this sort of elvish aristocracy um, in place here among the Wood Elves, we have uh, you know. It, Having seen that they did that, um, I find it completely plausible that there would be class issues, that there might be elves uh, like Toriel that would um, uh, get spurned uh, by members of the higher class, and that if you are an elven king and also a jerk, that you would also be an elitist jerk. That seemed to me perfectly plausible. I was not at all shocked that the writers took that in that direction, again, giving somebody who is both a jerk and higher class. Um, the third moment that I wanted to point to Jeffrey says it reminds me of Carinthir. Yeah, you're right. Carinthir is way ruder uh, than Thranduil was. Um, we have plenty of precedents for elves whose jerkitude exceeds Thranduil's. Um, uh, 
Carinthier would be um, um, would be very um, very uh, a good candidate for that. Okay. Um, third point, which a couple of you have uh, raised, uh, and I definitely do plan to address the the crazy face moment, right? The thing where like his face melts away. Um, first, let me explain how I understand that. Um, cause I'm not 100% sure I do, but if I am understanding it properly, what happened there is, uh, that Thranduil's face is in fact hideously scarred. Um, that he has no left eye, or like, his left eye is blinded, and his whole face is hideously scarred and maimed, um, as a result of some previous traumatic injury. Uh, uh but the regular appearance of his, uh, 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 uh lovely and attractive features and eyebrows are an illusion. I should have known those eyebrows couldn't be legit, right? It's, it's, a uh, it's, he's cast an illusion of, uh, of those eyebrows. Um, anyway, um, that's my understanding of what happened there. And then in that moment when he's talking to Thorin, he lets the illusion slip to allow Thorin to see what really lies under the illusion of his face. Okay. Um, so that's what is going on, but what the heck, what's that all about? Two things I would say about that. Um, two reasons I actually, once I first got over my being weirded out by that and confused, having thought it through, um, I actually quite like that. And I like it for two reasons. Or rather, I should say there are two things that I like about it. First, it gives Thranduil backstory. This is something that has been brought up to me a bunch of, you know, a lot of times I'll get questions from people who don't have a lot of experience with Tolkien, you know, from very casual readers of Tolkien, um, or from kids. And I find that they often ask really good questions. They ask, they ask me about stuff that I tend to completely take for granted and rarely even think about. Um, and one example of this are, we know that his elves are very old, right? They've been around on Middle-earth for thousands of years. Somebody once asked me, Tolkien's elves are really old. What do they do with themselves? I mean, like, how many times has Elrond left Rivendell in the last 6,000 years, for instance, right? And, I mean, you know, there are some answers to that, but even given the history of Elrond, what details we get of it in Appendix A, still, he's been in Rivendell. He's, he does spend quite some time there in Rivendell, right? Um, uh, uh, um, what's he doing with himself? Um, Thranduil. Here he is. He's the Elven King. Been the Elven King for goodness knows how long. Hundreds of years. Thousands of years. What do he do with himself? Has he no backstory? Does, it, does, it, is, does he have no interesting stories to tell? Has he never been on any adventures or, or done anything like that? Um, well, uh, they seem to have given him a backstory. I find that kind of interesting. Certainly elves living as long as Tolkien's elves do would have plenty of opportunity, uh, to receive grievous traumatic injuries. Um, uh, Eric asks, don't elves heal? Couldn't it be a vision of a previous injury? It is possible, of course, that it's not that he's releasing the illusion of health, um, uh, and revealing the scars that are really there, and possibly he's casting an, an illusion. Uh, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that basically the idea is, yes, elves can heal, um, like, in, in the sense that he survived, he healed, um, but if the whole side of your face gets melted off, like, they can't put it back. Um, that seems to me how I sort of understand that. Um, and, uh, 
he refers to the fact that he knows all about dragons and has experience with dragons. This is the other thing that I like about the Thranduil crazy face moment, um, is that it is it explicitly establishes a connection between him and dragons and, by extension, treasure. Um, he's got a thing for treasure. Dragon sickness and Thranduil have been, you know, are associated since longer than Thranduil was named Thranduil. In The Hobbit, the Elven King's got a treasure problem. And the greed that he shows by marching his army off to the Lonely Mountain to claim as much of the, the horde of Thror as possible before anybody else gets their greedy paws on it, um, is, is, puts him in a problem position. This is why he is just as guilty as Thorin is of greed and stubbornness and dragon sickness, um, at the siege of the Lonely Mountain. And it takes Bilbo doing his self-sacrificial thing to cut across that. But again, Bard, to a lesser extent, the Elven King, to a greater extent, Thorin, to an even greater extent, are all having the same issue there in chapter 15 and 16 of The Hobbit. So, the film is associated, is telling us, hinting to the fact, that Thranduil has some experience with dragons. Okay, was he minding his own business and the dragon just attacked him? Maybe. Um, a couple people have asked, uh, Dime was asking, do I think he was at Gondolin? Maybe. Maybe. Um, that would be kind of cool. Um, I, I, we don't know for a fact he wasn't. Um, I don't think there's any reference to when Thranduil was born. He might be a first age Sindar for all we know. There were plenty of Sindar, uh, at, uh, at Gondolin. Uh, Yana says, could it have been in the War of Wrath? Absolutely it could have been in the War of Wrath. Plenty of dragons in the north. Uh, dragons from the north, right? And it's, that's what he talks about. Dragons, the, the, the dragons of the north he refers to. Is he referring to the War of Wrath? Maybe so. Um, if he was alive at all in the First Age, he'd have been there at the War of Wrath. So, you know, any, any number of plausible moments at which Thorin, or Thorin, excuse me, Thranduil could have gotten hideously maimed by dragons seems perfectly plausible to me. Um, and again, is it, is it, is it egregious? Does it take the story in a different direction? No, no. It's very much in line with the themes that we get from Thranduil. We know he's got a treasure thing. The extended edition, of the first film made that even more clear than ever that the issue with him and the dwarves was treasure. He wanted a treasure. They were withholding it from him. The two of them were all, were, 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 you know, the dwarves and the elves have been at war, at, you know, at least at disagreement ever since, right? He's got a treasure problem. So we're associating him with dragons. That doesn't take the story in a different way. It takes the story in the same way, but again, shows, you know, shines a really bright light on it. Um, ooh, good. Sandra is, uh, recalling, um, an example of elven, uh, dismemberment and maiming, which did not, uh, which it did not recover from. Mythros losing his hand, uh, and, uh, surviving, but, uh, of course his hand didn't grow back or anything. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, good. Um, yeah. So Dave says, uh, a few of the elves of Middle-earth fought in the War of Wrath. Uh-huh. Is that true? I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, the majority of the fighting was done. Well, I mean, most of them are dead and gone by then. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, Dave the Vanyar. Yeah, see. Uh, Dave, when did you join me? So Dave Kale is here now. Uh, I didn't see you before. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, yeah, the Vanyar primarily make up the army there. Um, still. Still, anyway, the point is, there are dragons there could have been any number of times. That's right. I want to get, into, I don't want to get bogged down in details. Um, there could have been any number of times that he could have met a dragon. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. 
And anyway, thanks, Dave. Thanks. I appreciate it for, uh, for sidetracking me there. I'm going to move on. If that's okay. Cause it's already been really long and, uh, and I'm still not done. I got, uh, and I'm saving the big two, uh, for the end. Uh, the big two being, uh, the Toriel, uh, and Kiwi love story, uh, and, uh, the fight with Smaug and the Golden King. Um, so I'm going to get to those. But first, I want to talk about briefly about Bard and Lake Town. Um, I think that the just two quick things that I want to say about Bard and Lake Town. Um, the choice to depict Lake Town as essentially a slum, um, you know, to 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 depict the poverty of Lake Town, um, is uh, interesting. I think it's another example of sort of taking an idea in the book and really sort of expanding or exaggerating it. Um, the one of the things that is the, one of the most important factors in the description of Lake Town in the book is the fact that it is in decline, that it was a great town of old, but it's seen, you know, it, it's fallen from uh, the glory of the old days, um, though some still remember and sing songs, and you can still see the evidence during a drought of how the town used to be bigger. That's there. The film exaggerates it, right? Instead of uh, instead of seeing the piles of a much larger town, you get ruins of mighty stone buildings, right? Um, that Bard is navigating the boat through. Instead of just a town which isn't as big as it used to be, we have a town of people actually struggling. We have poverty and hunger in Lake Town. Um, again, these don't seem to me to me to be innovations. They are exaggerations. They are uh, drawing more for more. Uh, um, uh, stark attention to uh, the uh, things that Tolkien has already said about Lake Town. Um, and again, that seems to me to be a pattern here uh, in the way that things are handled um, in the films. Um, Bard. Bard is another example in the book of an incompletely retconned character. That is to say, when Tolkien wrote, uh, when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, when he first drafted Chapter 10, Bard didn't exist yet. He hadn't thought of Bard. He didn't think of Bard until he was writing Fire and Water Chapter, until until uh, Bard showed up just in time to shoot the dragon. Um, so the grim voice, when when that grim voiced man speaks up, that's the first time we ever meet Bard. That's the first. That's you know he wasn't there in Tolkien's mind. That's why he's not in Chapter Ten. So there are some questions, right? Questions which, if we think about the story as it ultimately becomes, again, not even Lord of the Rings, as it ultimately becomes in chapter 14, 15, 16 of The Hobbit, um, there are some questions that we could ask if we're going back and taking a hard look at chapter 10 of, of The Hobbit, right? Where's Bard? Um, what was Bard doing? Mr. Grim-voiced man, presumably he would have spoken against the enthusiasm that when everybody else is like celebrating and throwing small children in the air about the return of the king under the mountain... Mr. Grim-voiced man prophesying poison fish probably would have had something to say about it, and I can kind of guess what it might sound like, right? I don't know if he would have said, you have no right to enter that mountain, but he, you know, uh, I'm guessing he'd uh, he'd have had something to say, right? Um, so if Bard had been in Chapter 10, what would he have done, and what would he have said? Second question. If if you've got a, uh, an heir of the line of the old kings of Dale, and everybody knows he's the heir of the old line of kings of Dale, which seems to be the case. Um, uh, how does that affect the political situation in Lake Town, right? The film undertakes to answer both of these questions, right? We put Bard in from the beginning, and what's more, we insert him into the political situation. So the film with, um, the film with, I think, characteristic, um, 
I think one pattern that I see a lot is the film actually going out of its way to preserve elements from the book, even when those elements don't necessarily fit that well. That is to say, the easier thing to do, back to the bard question, right? Okay, so we've got the heir of the King of Dale living here in Lake Town. Okay, forget forget what we actually have in Chapter 10. Imagining we're Tolkien rewriting Chapter 10 now, right? Because we've got to now insert bard and the whole bard situation back into that, right? Okay, the easiest thing to do is to say, let's ditch the master of Lake Town, right? Let's just make bard the lord of, of, of Lake Town because he's the heir of Girion, right? So, you know, the, 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 the center of the human culture has shifted from Dale down to Esgaroth, so we're just gonna make Esgaroth, um, now under, you know, the, so, so we have Bard as a kind of king in exile, right? And he wants to return to Dale just like Thorin wants to return, uh, to the Lonely Mountain. We could do that, right? That would be one way to tell the story and to make it work consistently with what we learn about Bard later on. Um, the films don't do that, or they could do that, but they don't do that. They preserve the master, and uh, they they even make the master the same, a, a similar kind of corrupt. He's different, and uh, we could say I, I don't have time to talk about the the master tonight. Uh, but um, but anyway, we have a master who is sort of similar and corrupt in kind of similar ways, um, and a practical politician of a somewhat similar kind. So we, ha- but then we have his fraught relationship with Bard, the heir of Girion, who happens to be living there among them. Um, uh, yeah, as Dan, as you point out, the people blame Girion for not protecting uh, Dale or killing the dragon. Well, again, that's explicitly said by the master, right? Um, uh, which is which I, I thought was a really interesting moment. Um, anyway, what what we get from Bard in the film seems to be that uh, you know, it, 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 it answers the question, what would Lake Town look like? Um, if we knew if Bard existed all the way through. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. Um, uh, let's see. Brandon Lovesy was asking, can we talk for a second about the change to the Black Arrow? Um, yes. We, uh, briefly. Briefly, I can talk about that. Um, here's how I understand the Black Arrow thing, or rather, this is the... I really didn't like it at first. Um, the change. But I've kind of reconciled myself to it in this way. I put that in the category of changes made when you are representing something visually. Given the scale of Smaug, which I like. I'm glad Smaug is so big. He could have been smaller, but they didn't make him small. They made him huge. I like Smaug huge. Um, so that visual choice, I like. Given that Smaug is so huge, you remember when those huge ballista bolts uh, are being shot at Smaug in that flashback sequence, even those enormous ballista bolts look really tiny when they bounce off of Smaug's armor, right? If you had an arrow, properly scaled, striking a dragon the size of Smaug in the films, you wouldn't even be able to see it. It would look like a toothpick, like a splinter going in. Um, so even if you depicted it exactly as it's described in the book, I'm not sure the visual effect would be successful. I think it would really strain credibility. Um, and I don't think you would want to risk having the audience at the moment, at a moment like that, at a moment like the death of Smaug, to have the audience saying, oh, that little tiny arrow wouldn't kill that big dragon. He'd barely notice it. 
and it wouldn't even get through his hide. It's probably his skin is probably thicker than an arrow. If people are saying that, then that your scene has failed, right? So instead, they um, so instead they uh, they they make the arrow huge, right? Um, and make him shooting it out of a ballista. And you notice the other thing that they did. You notice the thing that they kept. It's this. This is another example of those things that, that again. These when I'm watching the film, these lines and scenes are continually popping into my head from the book. Like I, you know, I, I can see the scene from the book um, that the film is alluding to. Remember in the speech that Bard makes to the Black Arrow um, before he shoots it, he mentions uh, that it came from the forges of the King of the True King under the mountain. Right? That he had. They had. The black arrows, of which this is the final of the last one that survives, he ha- he had the black arrow uh, from the forges of the king under the mountain. Um, you remember there was the issue about the steel and iron weapons in Lake Town, right? Bard had no really good weapons that he could give them. They insisted on breaking into the master's armory, and even when they did, the weapons that the master gave them are not real impressive, right? Um, only the dwarves under the mountain had the capability of forging these black arrows. That is, they still have a surviving ballista uh, from the old days, right? They have a windlass, as they call it, which is another word. Um, they have a surviving windlass with which they can shoot these bolts. But most of the bolts didn't survive, and they don't have the technology to make more. They don't have the, capac- the capability of forging these black arrows, we're told. So again, it links the black arrow explicitly to the king under the mountain to the dwarvish kingdom. It is a relic of that older time, and only that relic of the older time uh, can do it. So the way that they worked that in, I thought really worked very well. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yana points out that the arrow does disappear all the way in him in the book. Yes, but it's one thing to say, you know, that the that the arrow went in barb, shaft, and feather. I always love that line. Um yeah, it, it works. You can say that, but you're not painting the, you're not conveying the scale, right? Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that the, that the scene in the book is bad. I'm just saying my suspicion is that if they did it faithfully, if they had him standing with a bow and shooting an arrow into Smaug, it would look unrealistic. If people would say that wouldn't kill him. Um, and I, 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 I think personally, I think that would be, that would be a pretty big problem. Um, okay. Two more things. Now I want to talk about the last two big things. I know I've been going a really long time tonight, but I've been saving up to, um, uh, to talk about this stuff with you guys. Toriel and Kiwi. Okay. Four things I want to say about Toriel and Kiwi. Number one, think about Toriel's character on its own. Here more than anywhere else is where we get into that, um, that objection or series of objections that I uh, was arguing against in my C.S. Lewis quotation earlier on. You know, the she's only there to appeal to boys, she's only there to appear to girls, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I am not interested in that line of argument. Um, you know, what kind of demographic considerations they're taking into account, I don't care. What I do care about is what role the character actually plays in the film itself. How does it contribute to the story? What direction does it take the stories? That's what I'm interested in. As a side note, I will say, this, uh, the, the, the addition of Toriel seems like an absolutely no-win situation for Peter Jackson. That is to say, if he adds another character and 
uh, just adds another male character. Uh, he's going to get crucified by everybody who's complaining there are no female characters in The Hobbit anyway. Uh, and, uh, and, and why would he add another male character? Isn't that chauvinistic? So if he adds a female character, everybody's saying, oh, you're just adding a token female character. Um, you know, oh gosh, there are no female characters in The Hobbit. Like, why would you do that? Like, that's such a deviation. I, I feel like, I, I really don't think it's possible for Peter Jackson, uh, to win there. But, um, again, I ask, what are the actual effects? What are the, what, um, what is the consequence on the story of Toriel's character and the role she actually plays? One effect is that it gives us a richer experience of Mirkwood elf culture. As I said in the book, we get one elf. We get the Elven King. He is our representative for all elves. Um, we get much more. We now have a much more complicated situation with the Elven King. We have now uh, not just one person as the voice, but this sort of three-body problem, right? We've got, uh, we've got Thranduil being a jerk and going in one direction. We've got Toriel going in the other direction and wanting to reach out, wanting to help the other peoples. Let's go to Dol Guldur. If there's evil in the forest, we can keep our borders safe, but this is more than our, this is our fight, right? All that stuff. Um, so we've got him arguing an isolationist policy and, 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 and her arguing an interventionist policy, and there's Legolas caught in the middle, right? What's right and what's wrong? Do I follow my dad or do I follow the girl that I think is cute? What do I do? Um, it, 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 it brings these issues out in, I think, a much more interesting and complicated way. But again, even more than that, even just the experience and the glimpse that we get, as I said, into elf culture. I really liked the prison scene, and I know that Dave... Kale did too. I'm sure he'll tell you about that um, in uh, in um, uh, in uh, a future Rules in the Dark episode. Um, I love the prison scene where she and Keely are having their first conversation. Um, you know, it, it was a, a little bit confusing, and there were things in it I was a little, really not quite sure how to take and where they were going with it in her in her lines about Starlight, but. Although I was confused and am still remain a little bit uncertain about some of those things, in general, I really liked it. You know that I that uh, uh, we never get inside the point of view of a Sylvan elf. I can't. Is there a single Sylvan elf that we really get to know? Legolas is a Sindar. Um, Haldir, maybe. I guess he counts. Um, Haldir is the only other Sylvan elf because the elves of Lothlorien are Sylvan elves also. Um, uh, we. Um, um, anyway, yeah, it, it's, um, I thought that was a sort of, at least a kind of interesting attempt, uh, to sort of show us that point of view. In this way, I was very interested by, uh, the, um, addition of Toriel's character and the effect on that and our understanding of it. Um, Sarah, uh, Lagarde says, the generations of elf-dwarf relations were nicely represented in the Woodland King realm. Toriel seeing Keely as a fellow creature, and Legolas getting a glimpse of youngster Gimli in Glowen's locket, uh, the next generation of improving elf-dwarf relations on a personal level. Yes, yes indeed. Um, uh, okay, Sam, I want to come back to your point in a second. Um, uh, Keely's character, before we get to their relationship. Um, 
Keeley's character is almost a blank slate. Not not exactly. I mean, we get a few lines from him in the book. He's one of the few dwarves who does get personally mentioned more. I mean, we certainly know more about him than we know about, say, Nori uh, in the book. Uh, but but he's virtually a blank slate. Um, so we we you know we learn more about. Keeley's character, you know, Ke- you know, the, the, Peter Jackson gives him a character, um, gives him a personality, gives him a background. You know, we get the the adorable thing about his mom. You know, his mom is worrying about him. By the way, that all by itself is like a little Easter egg, right? Because of course, Kiwi's mom, who gets mentioned, uh, is the only named female dwarf ever. Um, uh, you know, Thorin's sister. His mom is of genealogical significance, and so we, uh, 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 I, I thought it was really fun that we got this uh, uh, reference. Kiwi's mom. Um, um, so, uh, you know, we're going to get a little bit more of Kiwi. We're going to get to know Kiwi a little bit better before his presumptive death uh, in film three. Why not? Do we insist on knowing as little about him as we're told in the book? I, I, I don't see why we should. Okay, but the romance. I mean, obviously, an elf-dwarf romance uh, story is completely unprecedented. I mean, that wouldn't happen in Tolkien, right? No, it wouldn't. But again, um, that is, we don't have any previous precedents of that, but we do have plenty of precedents. Um, uh, of course, we have human elf interactions, and how different is that? Um, you know, we have like a little sort of low grade version, um, of, uh, uh you know, it's, it's not exactly a Baron and Luthien story, but you know, um, Toriel's way below Luthien uh, on the scale of things, right? Uh, Kiwi might be no Baron, but Toriel's no Luthien. You know, this is like the the blue collar <laughs> version, right? Um, but more importantly, again, I ask, what is its role in the story? What in what you know thematically? How is how does the Kiwi Toriel uh, relationship fit in? And this is where I, I strongly disagree with people who say, oh, it was so frivolous, it was so extra, like, it was just padding, right? Like, we're going to chuck in a love story and a wildly implausible love story to boot. I totally disagree. I think that um, the building bridges between these two races, which hate each other, as in evidence by Thorin and Thranduil, um, uh, which tend to hate and distrust each other, um, the fact that these two races should get to know each other better, should be on the same side, that they're, they, they, you know, they, they should be building bridges between the two of them, um, is an important theme, is an important theme even in The Hobbit, in the Battle of Three Armies, which almost, uh, which, uh, almost, but doesn't quite take place. The whole Siege of the Lonely Mountains section of The Hobbit is really interested in this question of, can these races overcome their preconceptions uh, and their own greedy desires and actually work together like they should to restore the peace and harmony of, you know, the greater Lonely Mountain region that used to exist, as we were uh, told in the past? Um, anyway, I... I um, because what I see coming from this, what it seems clearly to be coming from this, is a much more complicated situation during the Siege of the Lonely Mountain phase. Um, that is to say, now we're not just going to get the Elven King and Bard and Thorin in that standoff against each other. We're going to have Thorin and Keeley. We're going to have Toriel and Thranduil. 
Um, we're going to have Bilbo involved with all of this, and of course Bard as well. And I, I, I'm guessing the master of Lake Town uh, and his evil lackey are going to pay play a, a, a stronger role in the siege of the Lonely Mountain too. That is a, not a different situation, not a fundamentally different situation than in the book, but again, shining a spotlight on many of these themes, on many of these issues that are going to be there. Do I think the relationship between Toriel and Keeley is padding? No. Um, here's another example. Had the love interest of this film only been Toriel and Legolas, had what looked like was going to happen in fact happened, um, had we only just gotten the story of, like, star-crossed, oh, your dad says we can't marry, um, you know, shall we ever be able to fill our... F fulfill our love. Oh dear, you know, forget my father. Let us run off together. I mean, if we had just gotten like elvish Romeo and Juliet here, um, that would have been a distraction. That would have, I do not see how that would fit thematically with any of these things, right? That would, that would have felt to me. And that's why, and if you, for those of you who listened to Riddles in the Dark, you will remember that throughout season two, whenever it has come up, I have been saying that I really, really hope they don't just do the the um uh the Legolas and Toriel pat predictable um relationship thing. No, Scott, it's not Keely and Toriel that are Montagues and Capulets. It would be it would be Legolas and Toriel. That is just oh my father says we can't wed, oh we can't be together because we're of different classes. Um that's that's what I'm saying would have been um would have been uh uh, uh more like a, a, a sort of hackneyed old um, uh, Romeo and Juliet-esque kind of love affair, which, as I say, would not, as far as I can see, um, have furthered the main themes of the film at all. This does. Um, it is, cause it's all tied up with Lego, with, with Toriel's, um, with, uh, with Toriel's interventionist policies. You know, it is one of the things that moves her to actively rebel against Thranduil, uh, and to go and help, uh, not just Kiwi, but the rest of the dwarves when the orcs are going, uh, and pursuing them. I, I, I liked that. I thought that that all worked together, uh, really interestingly. Um, yeah. So, so as I say, in, in this way, I really kind of liked it. Um, and I thought, you know, when I ask myself, what impact does it have on the story? What themes does it connect with? Um, what to, to, you know, what, what things does it draw attention to? I find that those themes and those things are useful, um, and fitting with the themes that I would have expected to be. I mean, again, those, the overcoming of ancient elf, dwarf, distrust, and hatred is a theme. That's a thing in the, in the book. That's a thing. Um, it, it, it's an important theme. And that is the direction that I see, uh, that, that, that's the direction that I see the Toriel and Kiwi relationship heading. Um, the Golden King. Then I'll really let you go. Um, the Smaug fight and the Golden King. Now, the main thing that I've heard people say, you know, about the, the, the Golden King statue is, uh, the problems with, well, basically two major objections. One, that this is, if anywhere the film goes way off the rails in, uh, in departing from Tolkien's story, it's here, obviously. I mean, this whole sequence is not just an exaggeration. It's not like one small reference that's being expanded into a huge thing. It's completely in whole cloth being invented and fabricated and added 
in a way which really changes the story. Secondarily, lots of people say it's ridiculous. Um, and it's a place where disbelief is most firmly strained in the films. Um, I am sympathetic to the second one. I too find disbelief difficult to suspend. In general, I am an excellent suspender of disbelief. I don't want to brag, but I have some pretty good skills of suspending disbelief. Um, I'm pretty good at it. However, even my disbelief, uh, had to work pretty hard in that sequence. Um, you can't really float in a wooden wheelbarrow on a river of molten gold. It's not going to work out well. Um, but you know what? I'm okay. <laughs> you know, so I found that was that to be a blemish. Um, to me, it was the only part of the film that made me feel like I felt watching Radagast go around in circles when he's supposed to be leading the wargs away. Um, but back to the first objection. So anyway, so anyway, I'm perfectly willing to concede that that part of the film was not very was not nearly as successful as many of the other parts of the film, in my experience as a moviegoer. But thinking about it simply as adaptation, thinking about it simply as story, and how it fits in with the themes of the book. Um, first, I liked it even if only for the kind of Hobbit Easter eggs that we got. Um, you notice. What happened when the king under the mountain returned? When Thorin returned to Erebor, what happened? The the river's golden run, right? The rivers ran with gold. The wealth like a fountain. And I'm like, ah, that's funny. That's actually, that's actually kind of, kind of, when, I, I, I had no idea what was going on. And then like when they pull the thing and the liquid gold starts coming down and forming a river. And then like when he jumps in, you know, in the wheelbarrow boat, um, again, I was thinking not only, and now is when he would be burning to a cinder, but, uh, but at the same time, I was like, look, the, the rivers are running with gold. Like Thorin, the king is being swept along literally on a river of gold, um, from the forges of the king under the mountain. That's kind of cool, actually. Uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of like that. Um, um, now, okay, but yeah, sure, fine. Um, but again, it's, oh, oh, sorry. One other point about the unrealism, about the straining of disbelief. Again, we must face these things squarely. Disbelief is also strained pretty heavily in The Hobbit itself. Um, and here I'm thinking in particular of the passage that's alluded to in the whole, um, Forges of the Dwarves subplot. Um, again, that whole plot ha seems to be connected. I mean, that is, I can hear an echo of this one line. Remember at the beginning of the fire and water chapter, when they see the flames, uh, in the distance, they see the, 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 the light, the lonely mountain light up with, with, of course, it's the breath of smog that it's lighting up with, but, um, people in Lake Town see it and they're like, look, the king under the mountain is forging gold. The rivers are running, are, are, are running gold, right? It's all the prophecies are coming true. And Bard is, this is when we get grim voiced Bard speaking up. Now, um, that's really stupid. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to believe that the people of Lake Town are dumb, but that's dumb beyond normal levels of dumbness, right? That they're looking up there. They know there's a dragon up there. At least they've been told there's a dragon up there. They have legends there's a dragon and there are still old people among them. Uh, it still seems to be a minority opinion in the town that there's no dragon. At least that's my reading of the book. Um, so most of them think there's probably a dragon up there. If you see a burst of golden light on the side of the mountain, what's more likely? Do you, would you really be able to convince yourself, oh yeah, uh, 
the king of the mountain is back, and he set up a forge, like, on the side of a mountain, you know, not underneath the mountain where the forges normally go, right? But he, like, took a forge to the side of the mountain, and he's forging so much gold so fast that, like, we can see it from here. It's like, what rational human being thinks that way, right? I mean, it's it's a completely brainless thing to say. Um, so, again, I have to do a lot of suspending disbelief uh, that the people of Lake Town are quite as big suckers as that. And yet, again, we take those lines, the lines that they say, the kingdom of the mountain is forging gold. And in the film, he does forge gold. I think that's really cute. But anyway, um, but back to the bigger issue. The film has completely deviated from the way that Thorin is characterized and that whole sequence is done uh, in the books. Thorin never emerges from the tunnel. The dwarves are busy. All they do when confronted with Smaug is cower and hide in the tunnels. They run away and hide and stay hidden. They never even threaten. They talk about it, fighting Smaug, but they never even threaten actually to do it. Um... But I agree with what Scott Farmer says uh, here. Movie Thorin can't cower. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's not just, well, see, but that's because Peter Jackson has already taken Thorin's character in a completely unwarranted uh, direction. Let me ask this. What would Gimli do? Okay, we know Gimli pretty well. Could you imagine Gimli acting the way that Thorin and company are described as acting in The Hobbit? Could you imagine Gimli, under those circumstances, hiding back in the tunnel and saying, shh, 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 the way that, the, that, that Thorin and company do when Bilbo is calling out for light, right, when they're exploring? The, remember, that's one of my favorite moments, when they're all shushing Bilbo from the tunnel, and he finally has to scream, light, at the top of his lungs, right? I love these moments. It's delightful. Uh, I find the dwarves funny, and it's great. But it's not consistent with what we see later on. It's not consistent with Gimli's character. Um, it's not consistent even with the Thorin that we meet by the end, where Thorin's character comes to by the end. And when we, certainly when we get the entire back history of the dwarves, not the entire back history, but when we get the back history that we get in Appendix A, um, of the dwarves in there, and their, can we imagine Thorin and company? never once even attempting to fight the dragon and to 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 take back their homeland and to uh to bring their curses home to Smaug as they say but never try to do uh, at all um way back in chapter 1 of the hobbit i don't think that um yeah <laughs> bree says the lord of the rings appendices thorin wouldn't cower either no i really don't think he would um yeah yeah um, so the mere fact that Jackson decides to add a sequence in which they don't cower and hide, but try to fight or kill the dragon seems to me to be a logical consequence of telling the story consistently from the beginning in that post-epic dwarves mode. The dwarves, the dwarves, I mean, it, it, this is sort of an interesting study in itself. If you go back and look at early manuscripts and the early Silmarillion materials, uh, the history of the dwarves in Tolkien's creative world is a, an interesting little history, actually. They used to be bad guys. Um, originally, in the early Silmarillion stories, they're pretty consistently um, orcish, basically. They seem to be servants of, of, of Morgoth. Um, then, in The Hobbit, they're Mostly good guys. Um, 
if you don't expect too much, right? Uh, then, uh, by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings and to the appendices, they're quite different. You know, now they, they still have their issues, uh, but they're this relatively, uh, sort of noble, um, uh, this, this, this relatively noble group. So, again, you know, at this, neither Lord of the Rings, appendices, Thorin, nor Gimli would act like the dwarves in The Hobbit do. Now, what actually occurs? The whole thing with the golden statue? On one level, as I said, I found it silly, and I found myself sitting there finding my credulity really strained to go along with it. But there's another part of my mind that was watching this and really liking the symbolism of what I was seeing on the screen. Uh, first, with the reawakening of the Forges of the Dwarves, you know, symbolically, I liked that, you know, as sort of an indicator of the return of, of, of the return of the king, and not just of the return of the king. It's not just like Thorin steps in the building and the forges light up. The forges light up when you know his line about you know all burning together and everything. Um, he's decided I'm not going to suffocate here. He, if the movie Thorin says I'm not going to cower here and hide and end up dead like the other you know, like, like the dead dwarves that they find. Um, Instead, he's going to, he's going to seek to retake his land. And it's in that, it's in the process of that, that the forges of the dwarves of Erebor are relit. And again, symbolically, I like that about, you know, this, this idea of, uh, you know, life returning, uh, to Erebor as, uh, as, as, you know, in, in lining up with Thorin making this choice. Um, the statue mold. Apparently, my understanding, again, my understanding of what we're seeing on screen is prior to Smaug's arrival, immediately prior to Smaug's arrival, uh, the dwarves of Erebor had constructed an enormous stone mold for a gold statue. That's, of course, exactly how you would make a colossal metal statue if you were to make a colossal metal statue. Um, so, apparently, it had been in the works, a golden statue of Thror in the King's Hall, right? That's, it's, it's the King's Hall, um, that is, Thorin refers to it a couple times. So, apparently, right before the arrival of the dragon, Thror had been planning and ha had commissioned and work had been almost completed on a gigantic golden statue of himself. So, one thing that we see here is a, a, a clear sort of manifestation or symbol of Thror's dragon sickness. Um, this golden statue of himself, I don't know if Peter Jackson was thinking of, of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, but I was. Um, uh, you know, the sort of gold, you know, uh, idolatry of gold uh, in this here. Um, anyway, so, uh, so was, okay, so anyway, so, so we have that initial symbol, um, you know, of Thror in this golden statue. Um, but then secondly, what after that? Then what happens? So Thorin's plan is to relight the forges. The plan is kind of complex, right? Relight the forges and uh, melt all the gold and pour the gold into the mold, right? So that everything is set up to pour the gold into the statue, the, the, the molten gold into the statue. So we're going we're gonna to go ahead and do that. We're going to lure Smaug in there, and then we're going to we're going to break the we're going to release the mold, and then the liquid gold is going to come and engulf Smaug, and that's our best chance to kill him. That, as far as I understand, is Thorin's rather complicated plan, um, which requires an immense amount of coordination. And again, I, I am, was as sensitive as, as, as most people uh, to how extraordinarily unlikely that was to all work out properly. However, 
again, the symbolism of that moment with Thorin standing there. So again, here's the statue of his father in gold in the Hall of the Kings, right? This, 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 this literal symbol, both of the wealth and majesty of the king under the mountain, the last king under the mountain, which was Thor, his grandfather, who's now dead, um, but also of his sickness and of his corruption, a reminder um, of the gold sickness that Thor had. And here's Thorin standing on top of it, confronting the dragon, um, who was attracted to Erebor by the gold sickness of Thor, we uh, have been led to believe in, um, in several places. Um, and you have Thorin... Um, so, so I, in this one snapshot, it looks like we have Thorin sort of in the same place, right? We have Thorin um, connected with that golden king statue uh, in sort of a similar way to the way that Thor was. You know, sort of is is, the, is this the embodiment of 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 of, of Thorin's vision? Do we see Thorin uh, kind of going off the rails here? Here, well, I no, I don't think so, because when the plan, the whole plan, is to sacrifice, <clears throat> essentially, to sacrifice that statue. Mold presumably took quite a while to set up. He's not going to go through with the statue of gold. Uh, he's going to merely use that as a lure and a trap uh, for Smaug. There is a sense in which it's like the the it's the image of his grandfather, right? The image of the last king um, that he is de- on purpose destroying that golden statue with all of its complex with all of its sort of symbolic complexities um in order to try to destroy the dragon so using the gold which attracted the dragon and which attracts the dragon and fascinates him in that moment for the destruction of the dragon is a really cool moment for thorin and we can see him not doing what i was afraid of and we know that thorin was going to go downhill uh into dragon sickness that was um, and we know that from the book, it was implied way back at the beginning in the, in the prologue of film one that he was, it was sort of suggested that he was going to be struggling with that. Well, um, what I was afraid we were going to get in film two was Thorin going right off the rails, was Thorin just sort of getting worse and worse and worse, um, uh, in this rapidly accelerating fashion. And we didn't get that. We saw evidences of him losing it. But we also see him kind of fighting against it. And I thought it was interesting. I thought that that was, um, you know, as we saw again at the beginning, him recognizing the problem with his grandfather, um, and, uh, sort of apparently kind of being, being conscious of that. Um, anyway, um, so his giving, his, his giving it up, his sacrifice seemed to be Thorin attempting to, he's not his grandfather, right? He's going to let, the huge golden image of his grandfather crumble, uh, not to mention wreck the hall, um, uh, in order to try to consume the dragon. And that image of Smaug, Smaug the Golden, again, another of those little Easter egg nuggets, uh, little phrases uh, from the books that, that kind of pop out at various moments, like the river's running with gold. Um, Smaug, there, when we have Smaug the Golden, we have Smaug himself consumed now uh, by the gold uh, in this sort of interesting reversal back onto Smaug. Um, and then that being the thing which drives Smaug off and to ultimately what we know is going to be his death. Like I say, I am not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to pretend that that ending sequence wasn't really strained in a lot of ways. It really was. And, and I was, as I said, very conscious of it, but at the same time, 
I really liked the symbolism of it. I really liked the force um, of all of those things. Even the fact, you know, the fact that the mold, you know, the mold was sitting there. That's really cool. There was an empty statue of the king under the mic in the king's gallery was an empty mold. Like there was like literally a king under the mountain shaped hole in the middle of Erebor. That's a cool symbol. I like that. Even when I think about the mold just by itself. Anyway, um, with the golden king scene, silly as it is in some, in like physical respects, um, thematic, I ask myself, how does it function thematically? What, what, what is the story of the film saying at that point? In what direction is the story of the film pointing? I ask myself that question and see what it's doing and, and compare it with a book. And I find it interesting, not always identical. Again, we don't see Thorin struggling against the dragon sickness in the book. Um, we don't see that. But, you know, I compare that, for instance, to Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings films, right? Um, Aragorn saying, oh, I turned away from being king long ago, right? The kind of self-doubt that we get of, of Aragorn. That is a concept which simply <clears throat> goes, uh, has very little precedent in the book. It takes Aragorn's character in a, in a, in a completely different direction from Aragorn's character as we get it in the book. Um, I don't see that happening in the Hobbit film. There's almost nowhere in the Hobbit films that I have seen that kind of a shift, that kind of a, I'm going to take this character in a 90 degree different direction. I'm going to take this story uh, and introduce this theme, which is not only different, not only not there in the books, but fundamentally alien. In fact, fundamentally contradictory to some of the major themes and ideas in the book. Um, that I saw in the Lord of the Rings films. I don't see that in the Hobbit films. I haven't seen that at any point in the Hobbit films. And this is why I've said, I said last year, and I say again this year, I was impressed even more in that way by Desolation of Smaug than I was by An Unexpected Journey, that these films show to me more careful engagement with the books than the Lord of the Rings films did. Now, I know some purists will say that's a pretty low standard, but, but, but seriously, I think that, you know, whether or not you agree, you don't have to agree with it, you don't have to like it, but I think that it is pretty clear that they're thinking really carefully about the story, about the Hobbit book, about the Lord of the Rings, about how, how all these things fit together. They might not have done, you know, the, the, the project that I said at the beginning, the project they're clearly undertaking to go back and retell the Hobbit story connected from the beginning um, is operating from the beginning within the world of the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, if you were undertaking that project, you might have done some things differently. I don't doubt. I'd have done some things differently, too. As you can tell by the fact that I uh, own, that I got less than half of our riddles right this year in Riddles in the Dark. <clears throat> However, um, I, I don't see them simply not uh, talking about this. I, I, I don't see them simply not thinking, simply pushing the story in completely different and alien ways and, 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 and having its themes be very different. Um, <clears throat> oh, Jeffrey asks, am I going to go over Gandalf versus Sauron today? No, I hadn't planned on it. Um, in, yeah, I mean, obviously there's more to be said there. There's more to be said about a whole bunch of things. Um, I wanted to uh, uh, talk about some of the big stuff. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's uh, practically dawn over there in England, so I should let you guys go. Um, uh, 
I, we, there will be more, ch- more chance to talk about more of this stuff. Certainly, we're going to be going over a bunch of these things uh, in Riddles in the Dark uh, in Season 3. We'll start the year by uh, going back over some of the stuff from the films and talking them over together. Uh, there will be, uh, then, you know, we'll be moving on to be uh, anticipating and talking about uh, Film 3. Um, so, you know, there's lots more to be said, and we'll all have more chance to say it then. But I did want to, and I hope you can see sort of the overall uh, argument that I'm making. Do I think Peter Jackson's films, you know, are totally in the spirit of Tolkien's books? No, I don't think that. I think there are lots of things in which they differ. If you want an example, I'll give you one. To me, my biggest objection to the films is the way in which the 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 spirit of the action sequences, not the existence of the action sequences, but the spirit of the action sequences, is very different. Um, I, the way that this um, film, in particular, both films, really in general, um, really revel in violence um, and even invite us to laugh at violence uh, and to be amused by it. Um, is, I think, very different from the spirit of the books. Um, that, to me, is a major deviation, and I don't really like it. Um, although I've had lots of good things to say about how thoughtful I think these films are, that doesn't mean I would take my young children to them, and I don't plan to, actually. Um, my uh, 10-year-old hasn't seen either of the Hobbit films and uh, is not really wanting to, and I'm not going to push him. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, do I, do, you know, Am I a universal fan? I am not a universal fan. But as someone who thinks a lot about the story and has thought a lot about the adaptation, I find their adaptation choices not just defensible, but really interesting. And I see lots of evidence that this story is engaging with the original story. So as an adaptation, given everything involved in doing an adaptation from a book, I think I am very ready to say that what I see in this is a very respectful and a very thoughtful adaptation. And from there, you know, we can discuss details. But that is definitely, but that is definitely my overall thoughts on it. So thank you all for joining me, uh, for, to, for this very long discussion. Uh, but, uh, I, I appreciate all of your contributions and questions. Um, I didn't get to, uh, I didn't get to do, uh, take a lot of extra, uh, questions, talk about other topics at the end as I hope to, but as I said, we'll get a chance. Um, if you're interested in talking about it more, I hope you'll be able to join us for Riddles in the Dark in season three. Okay. Thanks. I, I hope you're able to make it. I know my voice was getting really scratchy and hoarse there at the end because I'd been talking for like three consecutive hours. So uh, <laughs> I thank you for your patience in listening through to the end. If you're hearing me here, I assume that you have. So I'll end by saying thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>